Open up your Bibles to the book of Acts once again, Acts chapter 17. We're going to conclude this chapter. We've been spending at least the last five or six weeks in it. It's such a meaty chapter, so much to go through here. But let's ask God's help before we begin this morning. He is risen. He is risen Amen. Father, help us. Glory in this truth. Look at your word. Do your work in it, through it, inside your people. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. And thank you that we can serve a risen Savior, which gives us hope today and tomorrow. Thank you, God. In your name, amen. This morning, as we've already said, we celebrate a risen Savior. Jesus arose from the dead physically, not spiritually. And that matters. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. Jesus arose from the dead bodily. And this changes everything. Resurrection is just not some nice story that we celebrate once a year because it's kind of cute. Resurrection is the bedrock of our faith. As the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ is still dead and that tomb is occupied, we are of all people to be most pitied. We might as well pack it up and go home. But Christ has risen and it was a physical bodily resurrection. And this changes everything. It changes it because it gives us great assurance. It assures us First of all, how we ought to live today in the present time. For if you are his and he has conquered death, how can we live for ourselves any longer? The sin that caused us so much destruction and pain, he has defeated. We must repent and continually run to our Savior who took that sin on his own body on that cross and absorbed God's wrath For you and I. It also changes what we think of death. For since he lives, why should we fear death? Now I get that nobody wants to die, but for the Christian, if Christ is really risen, then he has defeated death, and we need not fear it. The one who has defeated death and lives assures you that you will also live. When you die, if you are in him. And literally, the worst thing that can happen to you is that you die and go see Jesus. Death is not to be feared. And the resurrection of Christ gives us that assurance. It gives us the assurance of how to live now. It gives us the assurance to not fear death. And we live in a society, as we discovered over the last two years, that is very fearful of death. No doubt. Resurrection also assures us of seeing all of our loved ones who have died in Christ again. That their salvation is complete. Their salvation is realized. And they stand now with our Savior. And we will see them again. Amen. If Christ is not risen, we don't have any hope of that. This is why we celebrate today. It changes everything. How we look at life, how we look at death, how we look at our loved ones who have passed. 
It gives us hope, not only for our eternal souls, but it also gives us great assurance of hope for a new world. If you haven't noticed, our world is broken. Our world is a very sad place. In spite of all the beauty that exists in this world, and that's only by God's grace, there is as much sin, destruction, present in our creation than ever before. Much more confusion among people. Much more hatred and vileness and perversion that has ever existed. And even creation is groaning. Creation is groaning with great pains, as the Apostle Paul says. Earthquakes and tornadoes and hurricanes and blizzards. This is all the result of a sin-broken world that death has invaded. Adam and Eve were not the only ones cursed that day. Creation itself was cursed, and we feel the effects of it every day. But since Jesus is risen, resurrection matters not only for us, but it matters for the world. For this world that we live in will be made new again. It will go back to the way it was supposed to be. It will be a new heavens and a new earth. And just as Jesus died and rose again, just as we die to our sin and rise again by our faith in him and becoming born again, so will creation, who has also experienced death, will also experience resurrection. So when we look at this world, we can greatly hope in the assurance of an empty tomb. It matters immensely. It matters immensely. But there's also something else that matters about resurrection. And it's found in our passage today. There's another assurance of resurrection that we must know. And there's also an assurance that the world must know. Since Christ has risen from the dead, we will see what Paul says here. On, as he stands on Mars Hill in Athens, Greece. This is where we last left Paul in Acts 17. Put up the picture. He's standing on this rocky mount in Athens. In Acts 17, the Oropagus standing there and proclaiming Christ. He begins the sermon by saying to the people of Athens who were idolaters and the whole city was filled with idolatry. Down in the marketplace, down below there and the extreme left was a marketplace filled with idols and the exchanging of ideas. And it was here that Paul converses with people and they ask him to come back on top of this mountain and to tell them more. And last week we saw Paul compare their gods to the true God and even uses an illustration of the unknown God, a statue that they held there in Athens and used that as a bridge to point people to the known God, the true God of the universe. This is where Paul was He has set up the argument. He has made his point. And now he's about to bring it home. He's about to tell them what they ought to do. 
because this unknown God has now been made known to them. In verse 30 of Acts chapter 17, look with me there. Paul continues in this sermon and says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. That's an interesting phrase that he uses there, is it not? The times of ignorance God overlooked. What does this mean, this overlooking of ignorance that God overlooked? Well, it does not mean that God didn't require people to repent before. This is not new. Repentance is not a new concept here in Acts 17. God has always required faith of people who would become his people. It also doesn't mean that God ignored sin. That God just overlooked some sin in the past and swept it underneath the carpet and it was okay and let's just, let's just be fine and move on. Sin is no big deal. It's not what it means that God overlooked sin during this time. It means this. The word ignorant means to be unknowledgeable. To not know everything. To not know the truth. It means this, that there was a time that the special revelation of God only came to one people. And that was the Jewish people. And we see that story throughout the Old Testament of how God makes himself known to the Jewish people, to the nation of Israel. He chooses Abraham and gives Abraham a covenant and makes him promises. And the people grow from Abraham And God makes covenants with them and sends a Messiah through them. The nation of Israel was to be a kingdom of priests for the rest of the world. But they did not obey the Lord. They broke his covenant and did not share what they were supposed to share. It was to Israel that God gave the law. It was to Israel God sent the prophets, the sacrifices, the promises, the covenants, Israel knew. They had no reason not to know. God spoke to them in a special way. But who is Paul speaking to here? Not Jewish people. He's standing in Athens and the top of this mountain. And he's speaking to Gentiles. A Gentile is everyone who's not a Jew. Probably you in here today. What he's saying is God in previous times, overlooked ignorance. He's speaking to the Gentiles specifically. The overlooking of their rebellion to God means this, that God withheld his judgment from them. Because they did not know the truth, because they did not know the whole special revelation God, in times past, overlooked their ignorance. It doesn't mean they weren't accountable. It doesn't mean that they weren't judged. It just means that God was more patient with the nations than he was even with Israel. Because of these times of ignorance. Paul says this in Acts chapter 14. In Acts chapter 14, when Paul is in Lystra... Paul says exactly this. He says, in past generations, he allowed 
all the nations to walk in their own ways. He overlooked their ignorance, withheld his judgment. See, the one thing we must understand and never forget is that God is holy. God is holy and righteous. Every sin that anyone can ever commit is always against God. That's what sin is. It's to violate his nature. It's to rebel against his law. But God, by his mercy, God, by his grace to those Gentile nations who didn't have the law, who didn't have the prophets and the covenants and the sacrifices, who were supposed to hear from the nation of Israel about how good God is, God overlooked their ignorance, withheld their judgment. They're still accountable. None of those Gentiles could be in heaven at the judgment seat on the judgment day and say, well, the Jewish people didn't tell me, so I'm off the hook. No. God still commands people to repent. And God could have, God has every right to rain down judgment like, Sodom and, like he did on Sodom and Gomorrah anytime he wants on any people. And he's still good. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. But because of his mercy and grace, he is perfectly balanced in the economy of his attributes. Wrath and grace. Wrath and grace. God is not more gracious than wrathful, and he's not more wrathful than gracious. Sometimes people look at the Bible and say, well, you know, the God in the Old Testament, he was a big meanie. But the God of the New Testament is just a God of love. No. The God of the Old Testament is the God of the New Testament. God does not change. He's immutable. He does not improve. He does not change himself. He's perfectly wrathful and perfectly gracious in, these, in this economy of attributes. We see in Psalm 103 that the Lord is merciful and gracious slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He tells these nations that even though he allowed them to walk in their own ways, he does not leave himself without witness. For he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. So although the nation of Israel withheld the goodness of God from the nations... God was still good to them. How? He gave them rain. Rain is pretty important. Did you know that? They didn't deserve rain. But God gave them rain. God gave them fruitful harvest. God gave them food and gladness so that they would know him. And in their ignorance, they did not. So God withholds his anger. This is what Paul is speaking of these times of ignorance. God is slow to anger. Never forget that. God is not some hothead up in heaven sitting on his throne, throwing a temper tantrum. God is slow to anger. Think of a a boiling pot of water. It takes a while to boil. And it's only as you turn the temperature up will the boiling increase. 
Well, here's God with the Gentiles. The pot of his wrath is boiling on the stove. And at any time, he could crank it all the way up. And he would be rightful and just to do that. But because he's gracious and merciful, as well as wrathful and holy, he turns the temperature slowly. He gives them rain and season so that they would know him and perhaps feel their way towards him, as Paul said in the previous verse. God is so good. God is so good to these people who don't deserve to be dealt with in such a way. God is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. He overlooks that. Maybe you're saying, well, there's some evil people in this world that need to be struck down right now. And you're probably true. But you know what? The same is also true of us. The same is also true of us. God doesn't owe us anything but wrath. Because that's what we have deserved. But he is slow to anger. Slow to anger. Turns the knob slowly. It's still boiling. It's still getting hotter. But boy, he could have, bring it, he could have brought it on a lot quicker. But times of ignorance, okay, he's patient with sinners. Hmm. Paul says something similar in the book of Romans, chapter 3, and verse 25. He says, speaking of Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Again, here's the same kind of truth. God passes over former sins. He overlooks their ignorance. What does this mean? Think about it. Think of some of the people in the Old Testament. Some of their lives that were wicked. How ruthless they were. Think of Jacob, the con artist, right? Trickster, tricks his own brother, deceives his own father. Jacob was not a good dude at all. And God in his wrath could have judged Jacob. But God knowing that Jacob has been chosen to be one of his And knowing that Christ would die for Jacob in the future. Withholds his just wrath from Jacob now. Knowing that Jacob's sins would be paid for. What about these Gentiles that Paul is preaching to in Athens? Some of them living their whole lives in idolatry. God could have judged them at any moment. But God in his grace... Knowing that one day Paul would stand on Mars Hill, preach the gospel, and some of them will believe. Withholds his judgment from them. So they will know the truth. Knowing that Christ died for them. Our God is patient. Amen. He is patient. More patient than we ever deserve. And here is Paul telling these people how patient God is to them. He's been patient with us. God had divine forbearance. 
He held back judgment. He refrained his anger. Okay, so that was the times of ignorance, but what's the point? Times of ignorance got overlooked, but now, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The times of ignorance are over. The Jews had special revelation that no other nation on earth had. The Messiah was coming, that God is good and he's holy and he's to be feared and worshiped. But now, now times have changed. Because special revelation is not just for the Jewish people, it's now for the whole world. Because God invaded time and space, it became a man. Born in Bethlehem, grew up, and lived amongst us. And now he's being proclaimed, not just in Jerusalem. Paul is on this great missionary journey throughout Asia Minor, throughout the Middle East. And now he's in Europe. There is no reason for people in Athens to say, I have not heard the gospel. This is a different day. Things have changed. And now this command applies to all. And God is still in his right to be patient. God is still in his right to be wrathful. But now he has spoken through his son. And for all the world to see who he is and what he's done. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So that whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Amen? It's not just Jewish people who could be saved, but now God has manifested his love and truth to the world. The times of ignorance, the world didn't know everything, and God was more patient back then. But now that the truth is known, the truth must be confronted. The truth must be dealt with. This is for everyone, all people, Everywhere. And what does God command? Repentance. Repentance has become a dirty word in today's church. It's a word that doesn't like to be brought up very much, which is a shame because it's biblical truth. The word repent means a change of mind. Literally, it's what it means. Metanoia. It's a Greek word which means change of mind. It's the changing of my mind of what I had once thought was true, but now I'm repenting from that and now believing what is true. I'm leaving lies and going towards the truth. So what does God want these people to repent for and of? What must they change their mind about? This is what Paul is getting at now. God has overlooked times of ignorance before, but now, now you know the truth. I have told you who he is. I've told you who Jesus is and what he's done. And now you must repent. Change your mind about that. Change your mind about what? Who you are. Well, who am I? You are a sinner that stands guilty before a holy God. And you need a savior. As do I. You must change your mind about your position before God. That you stand before him unrighteous. Deserving of his wrath and judgment. 
And you stand guilty before him because you have broken his law. You have sinned against him. Some people live this life and maybe you're here today. You don't believe you're a sinner. Or even if you do believe you're a sinner, maybe you don't believe you're that bad of a sinner. That's not the way it works. All people sin everywhere. And it's just not one sin that takes you to hell. You are born with a sinful nature inherited from Adam. You are born with a propensity to rebel against God. We are all born guilty. We are born needing a Savior. We don't need a Savior from the first sin we do. We are born in sin. We must change our mind and repent that I need a Savior. I am a sinner and I'm guilty and I need God to save me. You must repent about who God is. Who is God? He is the Savior. He's the only one who could save and his name is Jesus. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through Christ. You can't work your way there. You can't please God. You can't give enough money. You can't live enough of a moral life. You can't become a member of a church. None of those things matter. What only matters is that you believe you're a sinner and you trust the only Savior, the only way to heaven. You need to change your mind about how to get to heaven. If we're all going to Walmart, we can go different ways, can't we? We go down 75th Street to make a left on Cortez. We can make a, go, make a left on Manatee and make a right on 59th Street. If you really want to go the long way, go all the way down to 14th and come down Cortez. I don't care. The problem is, even though there's lots of ways to go to Walmart, here's the problem. You're not going to Walmart when you die. There's only one way there. And we must repent of what we think of that. And the only right way to think is I'm a sinner going to hell. Jesus is the Savior and he's the only way. And I must believe in him in order to go to heaven and have a relationship with him. I must repent of what he did. What did he do? Oh, he died on the cross to save me. And even though I was guilty, he bore my punishment and became guilty for me. God, even though I deserve to have that Stove dial cranked all the way to high so God's wrath would be poured out of that boiling pot on me. Instead, God had mercy on me. And when I placed my faith in Christ, it was because Jesus had already taken my blame. Jesus had already taken God's anger. Jesus had already taken my wrath that was reserved for me. That's why the cross is so amazing. Jesus was innocent. We are guilty. We must repent that the sin that has condemned us has been placed upon Christ and that is the only way God will be pleased with my faulty record. No matter what I've done, no matter what sin I've committed, you name it, Christ pays it all. There's no sin that a person cannot be forgiven for that Christ has not paid if they place their trust in him and believe in him. And that's what you must do. Believe in Christ for salvation. Stop trusting in yourself. Stop trusting in others. Trust in Christ alone. This is what repentance means, to change my mind. 
of who I am, of who God is, of what he did for me, and what must I do now. If you believe that you're going to be good enough to go to heaven, you are wrong. You are wrong. You will not make it. There's only two kinds of people at the end of time. Those who have repented and believed in Christ and those who haven't and still remain in their sins. For one, there's everlasting life and the other, there's everlasting death. God overlooked times of ignorance before, withheld his judgment. But now that the truth is known, now that you're not ignorant of what must be done, then you are commanded by God to repent, to change your mind about who you are, who he is, and what he has done, and what you must do now, believe in him. That's how you become justified, solely by your faith in him and his finished work. Okay, but why? Why has God commanded people to repent? Like, maybe I'll get out of it. Right? It's like you're going to school and you like, we've all been there, I'm sure. Like, you remember like two minutes before class starts, oh, I didn't study for the test. Right? I mean, come on, who's been there, right? I didn't study for the quiz. I forgot it was today. Well, maybe I'll just give it my best shot and see how I do. Right? That, that might work in school. That's not going to work when you stand before God. At all. Why has God commanded people to repent? And this is where we see the other assurance of the resurrection. There's positive implications of the resurrection. Hope, peace, joy, confidence in death. We know that. But here's the second assurance of the resurrection. It's found in verse 31. Why must we repent? Why has God commanded all people to repent? Because he has fixed a day. He has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The other thing that the empty tomb, that the resurrection of Christ shows us is that judgment day is a fixed reality. If Christ is risen, there is a judgment to come. Period. If you are not a Christian, you have to face this reality. You have to ask yourself, is Christ really risen? And if he is, then will I take my chance to stand before him on judgment day? It's not a chance you want to take. This is the reality. Since Christ has risen, there is a judgment to come. So that's why God has commanded all people to repent now. Because in that judgment, Jesus is the judge of that court. The man whom he has appointed to judge the world in righteousness is the man Christ Jesus. The God man, God in human flesh. This is what Jesus says in the Gospel of John. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. 
Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. Truly I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. There you go. You want to escape the judgment that's to come? You believe in the resurrected Christ. You believe in him and that, that God has sent him. And you will not come into judgment. But Dan, you don't know the things I've done. I may not, but God does. And the promise is if you believe in him and trust him for your salvation, it will be forgiven. And you will not face judgment. Why? Because Christ has already paid all of it for you. He's declared you not guilty. He's given you his righteousness. You pass from death to life. That's just another way to say what? Resurrection. Resurrection. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. Oh, there's a resurrection for all. There's a resurrection to eternal life, and there's a resurrection to eternal death. Only Christ can you escape what is rightfully deserving on your record. You will have to give an account, and he is the one to whom you must give an answer. He is the one who has created you. He is the one whom you have sinned against, and when that day comes, unless You have believed in him. There is no way to escape his wrath. And what does it all boil down to? What does Paul say here? Is he dead or alive? I'm telling you, we have seen him alive. And since he is alive, you will have to answer to him. The resurrection gives us assurance that Christ is the judge of the living and the dead. And this is why all, must peop- all people must repent. They must repent now. They must turn to Christ now. You cannot save yourself. You cannot plead your case on that day. The only thing that will be pled for you is his blood. His blood which has been applied to your heart the day you believed. Period. Yes, the judgment is coming. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Easter is about one thing, an empty tomb. An empty tomb that gives us assurance for how to live this life and have peace and hope for tomorrow and peace that we will live forever with Christ who has saved us. See our loved ones again. But it's also assurance of this. 
that unless you repent and believe in him, you will surely die forever. You will surely die forever. Jesus, who was sacrificed as a lamb, spotless, innocent, peaceful lamb, will judge those who reject him, not as a lamb, but as a roaring lion. With great holiness and righteousness and holy vengeance, vindicating his glory and the justice of God for every sin that's ever been committed in the history of the universe. And that's the thing. Every sin ever committed, go back to the garden till today, will be held account. Be held accountable. For those who believe at the cross, for those who do not, you'll stand before him and give an account. And there's only one destination for those who do that. And that is the lake of fire, hell, forever. You could sense Paul's urgency here. Paul is not celebrating a holiday. He is passionately pleading with these people. Put your idols away. This unknown God that you don't know who he is, I do. And he has resurrected from the dead, which means you're in trouble unless you believe. And there's only two responses to him. As we said, there's rejection and there's belief. Look at verse 32. How did the people respond to Paul? Now, when they heard the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. There's laughter, there's scorn, there's unbelief, there's rejection. But others said, we will hear you again about this. They're curious. God is softening their heart. Tell us more, Paul. Tell us more about Jesus. Tell us more about what this means. So Paul went out from their midst and he told them. Look at verse 34. But some men joined him and believed. Others mocked, others believed. Among whom was Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris and others with them. Here on Mars Hill, where people were clinging to their idols, Paul preaches Christ, crucified and risen again. Does the resurrection matter? You better believe it. It matters more than you will ever know. It matters for assurance in this life and assurance for judgment to come. And I plead with you, as Paul pled with them, that the times of ignorance God has overlooked, no one is promised tomorrow. If you die without Christ, you will die in your sins and be separated from him forever. And since Jesus lives, you must give an account. Let him do the accounting for you. This is his gift of salvation. Repent and believe and trust the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and has risen again from the dead. 
And as we go out, not everyone's going to believe. As we saw, he, as we see here in Mars Hill. Some mock, some believe. Men and women. Praise God for those who do. But for the ones who have heard the message, they can no longer plead ignorance, can they? Times of ignorance, God has overlooked. But now, you're no longer ignorant. You know the truth. You know the truth. Trust in Christ. Admit that you're a sinner. Believe on him today. Ask him to save you and forgive you of your sins. And know that you cannot get there anywhere, any way, anyhow, but through him. Period. I plead with you to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. I'd love to talk to you more if you have more questions. Like these people here who said, uh, I need to know more information, Dan. I, I need to know more about what the Bible says. I need to know more about who Jesus is and why he rose again. Okay, we will hear you more about this. I'd be, lo- I'd be glad to hear you say that. Some believed, some wanted more information, some rejected. Which one are you? That's all that matters this Easter. Are you alive? Are you dead? Some of us are alive spiritually. Some of us are dead spiritually. All of us are alive physically for the time being. But this life will end and we will have to give an account to the one who's risen from the dead. Let's pray. Oh God, thank you for the truth of this chapter. The simple truth. Paul did not make it complicated. He made it very simple. We know what God requires. Repent and turn to Christ. Change our mind. Change our mind, oh God. For those who are in this room or who may be watching online, draw them to yourself if they do not know you. Open up their hearts. Open up their eyes. Let them know that you love them. Show them that it's no time to play games with God. This is the truth. We plead with them to do what's right and to run into the arms of a loving God, a gracious God. A God who's been patient with them their whole lives. But Lord, there's a day coming where that patience runs out. Where the pot boils over. And accountability must happen. Help us now, Lord. Help them now. Encourage the hearts of believers in here. Of the glories of the resurrection. Hope in life, hope in death. Hope to wake up on a Monday morning and go to work. 
Nothing will ever change this from being true. No matter what happens to us today or tomorrow, nothing will change the truth of an empty tomb and a risen Savior. Thank you for this Lord's Day, the celebration of resurrection. Now, Lord, do with your word as you will. We rest assured that Your word will not return empty. You will accomplish all your purpose for which you have sent it for. Help us now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand to our feet this morning and sing a closing hymn. If you need to speak with me or need more information or want to know or maybe you believe today they're in the service, please Tell us, tell me. I'd love to talk to you more about the gospel. Amen? He is risen. Let's sing.